Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, Reed Goosens here, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for dropping by and tuning in and continuing to grow your investing knowledge of U.S. real estate. Each week, we come to you live from Los Angeles, California, talking about all things related to U.S. real estate investing and how you too can successfully break into the U.S. market as an international investor, just like I did. Each episode, we'll be interviewing industry leaders, real estate entrepreneurs, and good old-fashioned go-getters who can help provide you the tools to start successfully investing in the U.S. So let's get into today's show. Today, I have in the hot seat one of my business partners, Frank Rosler. G'day, Frank. Welcome to the show. Hi, Reed. Thank you very much for having me. Frank has been working on the institutional side of multifamily acquisitions for the past 10 years. He's been responsible for the oversight and management of over $450 million worth of apartment communities. That's right. He's managed portfolios worth over $450 million. It's pretty impressive. Frank has recently formed a new investing group called Ashcroft Capital, which focuses on value-add multifamily acquisitions in uh, approximately 12 major metropolitan areas across the U.S. I met Frank a few months back at my networking event in downtown LA, and I actually helped Frank pull together the capital required to help purchase a 250-unit deal in Houston, Texas, which we closed on in August of this year. With that being said, Frank, can you tell the listeners something that most people might not know about you unrelated to real estate investing? Uh, Sure. So I grew up in the country of Pennsylvania here in the States, and I never traveled much growing up, always was watching a lot of TV, but my parents just never really reached out for going to different countries. And as I've gotten older, I've enjoyed going to uh, new areas, and I've gone to Europe. I've been to Australia. I've been to a few different places in Asia, like Tokyo and Thailand, and looking forward to um, visiting some new countries down the road, too. What's been the number one place you've traveled to so far? Uh, It was definitely Tokyo. Loved being there. It's a beautiful city, great food, really, really polite people. I wish I knew the language, but (laughs) I enjoyed my trip there. Great stuff, mate. Frank, can you give the listeners a little bit more in-depth look at your background and really what motivated to start you investing in U.S. real estate? Yeah, sure. So, you know, my background's a little different from perhaps what your investors are in the sense that I'm not really a traditional investor. I've been working within real estate and I've been working for companies that help to place investors' capital into real estate. So I'd say, you know, I make more of a career out of investing that money and identifying opportunities than to be a passive investor in real estate. So, you know, to go on a little bit more about that, as you said, I've worked for a large institution that only buys, sells, and operates apartment communities, which is multifamily. And I had been with them for about seven years before I started Ashcroft Capital. Ashcroft Capital is very similar everything I did for that company, you know, it's only in multifamily, but it's in different markets. So I decided to focus 
on areas of the U.S. where I could get better cash flow for my investors as opposed to going to a major metropolitan like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, where you're going to be competing with a lot of very large buyers and cash flow is going to be much more compressed. So that's my business plan is to source and purchase apartment communities of about 100 units or greater. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're looking for deals that are value-add deals. Basically, anything where we can find an 8% preferred return for our investors per year or greater. That is our minimum standard required for acquiring an apartment community. Fantastic. And what's your background? Like, you obviously just didn't stumble into this line of, of work. You know, have you come through an untraditional route, as, as people might say? Yeah. So I actually, as a student, was an electrical engineer. And then I went off to Hollywood and worked in the entertainment industry for a couple of years. I, my family um, runs a talent agency. I worked for them for a couple of years. So you're right. It is non-traditional. I didn't like that at all. It wasn't right for me. So I went, I went back to grad school, not really knowing kind of what I wanted, but, you know, I had a quantitative background and I really liked finance and I really liked real estate. So that's kind of all I knew. And my second year in grad school, I took a class called investments in real estate. And my professor there was great. He was a former investor and owner of a firm and he retired and started teaching. And he really turned me on to, you know, valuing an apartment community and taking it from one point of revenue to another and just showing me how I might be able to do that with my career down the road. Because I I think I always liked it, but I just didn't know, well, how do you even say what a property's worth? It was interesting to me, but to actually then learn how to go about doing that really, really turned me on. So I was, you know, it was 2008. The market had crashed here mm-hmm. in the state. We had a couple large investment banks go belly up. I'm sure investors are very familiar with that crash. And <laughs> I, uh, I couldn't get a job anywhere. So I started off at that uh, group as an unpaid intern. You know, I was willing to do whatever it took in order to get my foot in the door in a really tough market. And that first three months that I worked there, I made no money. I watched my savings account plummet, but I got to learn. I got my foot in the door and then they hired me. And yeah, my career just kind of grew from there. So that's kind of how I got into multifamily and on the institutional side. I just grew while I was there, got promoted and worked on a couple different sides of the, the company, which exposed me to not only the acquisitional side, but the asset management and the operational side of the property as well. Cool. Well, as the listeners have probably realized, today's show, we really wanted to start looking at why we love multifamily investing uh, in the US. And today's show is all about getting started and examining the nuts and bolts of why both Frank and I love that type of asset class. So Frank, can you walk the listeners through firstly, why you like investing in multifamily apartment communities rather than say a single family? Yeah, sure. My answer back to that is a risk reward ratio. So I have flipped a home before and I did really well on that home. I made about a 1.6 multiple in less than a year, which sounds great. And it is great, but it was one of the most stressful situations of my (laughs) life. And I also was not an expert in it. So, you know, though I work in commercial real estate, I don't know anything about 
putting in new floors into a home or sconces and, you know, every little thing that you should know as a home flipper, I, I was not an expert in. Right. But more importantly, things could have gone south quite easily. What I was dealing with was, am I going to get a really big multiple or am I possibly going to lose all of my money if the market changes quick because there's no cash flow coming in? It's right. just a single investment that you're hoping will sell because some owner loves it. So mm -hmm. it's an emotional investment that you're banking on and less of a cash flow that someone else is going to value. So for me, yeah, multifamily, it might not get you a 1.6 or a 2.0 multiple in six months, but in the long run, you're going to do a lot better in multifamily because you're not going to be losing your whole investment, which happens to a lot of investors after a while if you keep flipping enough homes. Fantastic. So, well, that's that's great, mate. And I, I love what you said, you know, exactly hit the nail on the head. You know, the cash flow is king. And, you know, when I first moved to the US, understanding that was really, really important compared to just, as you're saying, a lot of time and effort going into something, hoping that someone will like the end product and pay you a lot more money for the product than what you put into the deal. So in the introduction, I mentioned that you have experience in institutional multifamily acquisitions. So can you explain a little bit more of in layman's terms the difference between institutional and non-institutional deals? Yeah. So when we say institutional, we're talking about a corporation that buys apartment communities, very large commercial deals, not from an individual. So unless it's an ultra, ultra high net worth owner, typically you're working at a company and that company has a fund of equity that it might have gotten from other passive investors or possibly, say, a pension fund, mm -hmm. other sources of capital, and you're buying a property from another very sophisticated institution that knows what they're doing as well. What that will do is minimize uncertainty and then therefore minimize risk. You have a much more firm grasp of the investment that you're acquiring, whereas if it's not an institutional investment and, say, there's just a mom-and-pop that owns this property, they might not know what they're doing with the property. And furthermore, when you buy it, you might be buying, a, you might spill over a can of worms that, hey, this property has a lot of deferred maintenance on it that they just weren't doing. And wow, we're in a lot of trouble right now. So I, my answer is, I'd say the best answer is institutional investing is one corporation buying from another corporation as opposed to a single investor buying from another single investor. Interesting. And is there a typically, you know, just maybe not a rule of thumb, but a size in terms of what an institutional buyer will look at, you know, and what they won't look at? Yeah. And I think the answer to that is the minimum that Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae is going to loan, which mm -hmm. is going to be about $5 million. That's mm -hmm. their minimum loan size. So agency debt is going to get you a property that's going to be approximately $7 million or greater. That's kind of the lower end of the institutional investments. Right, right. And that could be anywhere from 30 units to 150 units sort of thing. Absolutely. It depends on the market, depends on cash flow. 
Cool, cool. Well, about a year ago, I actually wrote a blog about why I love investing in multifamily apartments. And in that blog, I spoke a little bit about the top five reasons. The first reason that I love investing in multifamily assets is that it can it can make you money in three basic ways. And you know, I want to explain to the international investors a little bit about that. And you alluded to it a little bit earlier, Frank. But the first way is cash flow, and cash flow is pretty simple. You know, it's the fact that you know, the the rental income is greater than you know the combination of the money required to put towards operating expenses and to pay down the debt, so i.e. the mortgage. The second way that it makes you money is amortization, which means that you know renters will pay down your mortgage for you rather than out of pocket, you know, you having to pay out of pocket. The third way that multifamily apartment communities can make you money is appreciation or forced appreciation, um, which is what I love the most. So Frank, you, can you explain to the listeners a little bit more about forced appreciation or as you like to call it, value add in the multifamily apartment communities and how combining that with cash flow is just a great investment strategy for creating long-term wealth? Yeah, sure. So the deals that we like to target, as you said, are value add deals. So we're not just looking for all those things you said, which is cash flow, the combination of all the rents being greater than the expenses and the debt. We're not just looking for simple cash flow. We're looking for the opportunity to push that cash flow. Mm -hmm. So what we like is we like to see an apartment that is in a great location that Mm -hmm. is very well occupied, which means it's not distressed, which means you're going to have a lower risk when you go purchase this asset. But great area, well occupied, but for some reason, the rents are below market or not what they possibly could be. And that that could be due to any number of reasons. Maybe that complex, though it's in a great location, is a bit older than the competition around it. And in addition to that, the owner hasn't taken the time to do a light renovation on the interiors. So that, that might be one opportunity. Another opportunity might be an owner that just isn't doing a great job of minimizing expenses. So mm-hmm. we do a financial audit on every property that we buy way before we buy it. That helps us value the deal. And we'll say, okay, it has this cash flow, but oh, wow, look at their repair and maintenance or look at their marketing, look at their fees that they're charging. Maybe there's some opportunity to decrease expenses and then push cash flow. And that is our, our value-add proposition on that deal. Right. So, so yeah, that's an important aspect of every deal that uh, we like to see when we acquire. So really what you're trying to say is that you're really increasing the net operating income of a property. You know, you're increasing rents and or you're, you're decreasing the operating expenses. It's sort of one one or the other or a combination of the two. And so how do you increase the rents if it's under market value? Obviously, you can't just buy it and expect people to pay more for the same product. Do you do, you do anything in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So this last deal that we bought, as an example, we're renovating all 250 units. So we're uh, replacing laminate countertops with granite countertops. We're putting stainless steel appliances where there are white appliances, pendant lighting, uh, faux wood flooring, new vanities in the bathroom. All these little things that renters like to see that aren't too expensive to you and our minimum return on investment on that that we like to see is right around 25%. So the right. total cost of what we're spending on that unit will hopefully at least push rents by 25% of that cost. And that's over a period of of a year, correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, cool. Okay. Uh, and in your experience, you know, and in our experience, I should say, sort of, 
multifamily apartment communities, not just institutional multifamily deals, but just multifamily in general, it's typically easier to get obtained financing from the banks, would, would you say, than say a single family property? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because so when you go for a loan for a multifamily investment, the first thing you're going to be looking at is to see, do you know what you're doing? Do you have the experience? And did you value this property accurately? Mm-hmm. So those are the two biggest criteria. And then, yes, they're going to look after uh, net worth uh, requirements. But if that property is worth the amount that you valued it at and can afford those loan payments, then absolutely debt is going to be there all day long. Debt actually winds up being a commodity that competes with itself for the deals that you buy. Equity is more challenging to come across than debt. And to compare it to residential, as you said, yeah, that's another great example of why it's easier because on residential, they're underwriting you. They're not really underwriting the property. It's, Mm -hmm. hey, can you afford these loan payments at whatever price that you're buying this house at? Right. that's, that's and it, I also was explained one time that, you know, even if you're buying uh, single family houses or residential as an investment opportunity, you know, if you have a single family house and your renter just decides to get up and leave, then you have 100% vacancy in that property. But if you say have like a 30 unit property and five tenants get up and leave or, or whatever, you still have 25 other units paying that or the, have the ability to pay down the, the debt and, and have the ability to, to cash flow all whilst you replace those tenants. So it's sort of like the risk that all 30 tenants will get up and leave is a lot lower than the risk that a single family property tenant may just get up and leave and you have no way to pay the debt, correct? Yeah, you said it. I, I think it's about volatility and yeah. you have a lot more to risk when you have volatility of 100% or 0% versus, you know, one person moving out of a 200-unit complex. Right, right. Frank, I also wanted to touch a little bit on the passive income stream produced from apartment communities, different to cash flow. And and, and listeners out there, Frank and I actively invest in out-of-state markets like Texas or Philadelphia or Kansas City. But the passive income generated typically occurs once a building is operating effectively. So, you know, this means... You, you needing to employ a good property manager that will run the day-to-day operations of the property, like finding tenants, dealing with maintenance issues, rehabbing the apartments, as Frank said, to add the value and increase the rent, essentially running and operating the, the building. So Frank, how important is it to you to have a good property manager in your team to ensure that the building is running smoothly and you don't have to focus on the day-to-day operation of it, but you can focus on then finding other deals and growing your real estate business? Yeah, it can really make or break a deal, and they are not easy to come by. Mm-hmm. I think there's more mediocre property managers than there are great property managers. And once you find one that's a great partner that knows what they're doing and won't take their eye off the ball, even when the property is doing well, that mm-hmm. will continue to work hard, stay focused, make sure that property is highly occupied in pushing rates every day as well. If you find someone that can do that and do a great job of it for the long term, then stick with that group. Fantastic. So really, like once the building is stable and performing, your, your involvement becomes a little bit, as an operator or a syndicator, you, becomes, you become less involved in the deal. And typically, how often in a year would you check in on a, on a property once it's up and running? Well, you know, I'm not a limited partner. I'm a mm-hmm. sponsor. So mm-hmm. I am the operator and mm-hmm. I have a fiduciary responsibility to all of my investors to 
check in with that property on a regular basis. So even when things are going well, I'm never going to take my eye off the ball. So for me personally, and again, I'm not, you know, maybe the people listening to this, I don't want to be a passive investor. I want to be uh, overseeing the management company that's running this property. I might not be visiting it every month, but I certainly will be speaking with them multiple times a month, reviewing financials and making sure for my investors' sake that the property is performing the way that it needs to. That's great. And then and listeners, what was Frank was saying in terms of the general partner is that he, you know, in a syndicator is that that's a responsibility of the syndicator to take care and make sure that your investment that you invest in in a syndication is, is looked after and that the investment is continuing to perform at its peak. So Frank, I actually just wanted to briefly touch on, you know, your ability in the Woodland deal that Frank was able to negotiate with another syndicator uh, who was based in Texas, which is a great example of just good business to partner with us on the Woodland deal. And part of this syndicator's business was property management. So Frank offered him the property management for Woodland uh, as they were local guys who knew the area and the demographic very well. But Frank also got them to be financially involved uh, to the deal, which means that the property manager is now financially incentivized to make the property perform at its peak and have skin in the game. So I think this is a complete, this is a brilliant strategy by Frank. And I, I don't know, Frank, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on how you use that strategy and a good property manager sort of we were talking about before to be on your team and be local guys and then essentially make the property really work at its peak? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, the short answer is that I made the property manager my partner. Mm -hmm. So often the property management group is paid through a fee. It might be three, four, 5% of the revenue of an asset. And when the revenue fluctuates a small amount, it really doesn't make their fee that much greater or less. So that isn't often the best motivation. So as an owner, if you don't want to be greedy and you do want a great investment and you're willing to partner with the operator, they're going to see a lot more benefit toward making sure that property is performing at an excellent level. And that's exactly what we did. So the management company uh, in Houston is run by a partner of mine now who benefits tremendously off making sure that that business plan is carried out through the terms of our investment. And we're seeing great results right now. That's fantastic. So he's he's an investor in the deal, but he also gets the upside of being the property manager. I, I truly think that's a brilliant, brilliant business strategy. But so, uh, Frank, with that being said, what has been the biggest learning experience to date that has shaped your success in the U.S. market? Biggest learning experience, huh, is I would say it's just been a slow growth for me <laughs> of learning this whole world. It, you know, through this podcast, we're touching on all the very, very high level points, but it's been seven years of learning what not to do as opposed mm-hmm. to what works. I have, through the company I've worked at, not only seen a few deals go south there uh, and learn from that, but I've seen competitors of ours uh, go belly up from being overly aggressive. I, I think that I think the biggest lesson I've learned, and I'm talking out loud as you're asking me, mm-hmm. is to not fall in love with any deal. It, every deal, it, it can be purchased at a price that is beyond its value, mm-hmm. and it's always worth it to wait, even though you put in a lot of time into this acquisition. If the price isn't right or you find out there's something wrong with the property, back out because there definitely will be another deal down the road. 
Fantastic. Love that type of attitude. There's always another deal around the corner if it doesn't work. And if it's if the numbers aren't working, then don't try and push it. Uh, just a little bit on the, the mistakes that you've seen. What what have, what type of mistakes you know specifically that you saw? That it, Was it just paying too much for the property and being too optimistic? Or what was it? I just think a lot of these groups don't pull their head up sometimes and look around. I think they keep their head down. And don't worry about the way the market is headed or how much the property is being bid up. And they will buy a deal without really thinking too much about the consequences of that price. And I think it's what got everyone in trouble kind of in the 06, 07, 08 time, just through thinking that, hey, these good times are going to last forever and to just buy, buy, buy at any price because there's always going to be someone else to sell it to. And, you know, we take a much, much uh, different approach. We try to value each deal, come up with a price that works for us, throw that offer out there, and if it works, then great, but not really expect any offer to actually get us the deal. And so by taking that approach, we're certainly going to make a lot more offers on deals than we're going to get. But the hope is that even if we only buy the top of the iceberg, we're, we're getting kind of the cream of the crop. We're getting a property that we feel is going to give our investors the best returns and it also is the safest deal possible too. So it takes a lot more work. You might buy less deals in the long run, but hopefully you're going to get a better quality of investment. Right. And I just want to touch briefly on what you mentioned before. You sort of the way the market is now, you know, it's 2015. It's been seven years, eight years since this, you know the, the big doom and gloom of 08. Where, where are you seeing the market heading over the next five to six years, or even even the shorter term? Well, I don't think prices are that crazy right now. I don't think that lenders are offering predatory loans as much as they were earlier. Mm-hmm. I think we still have time before a downward cycle starts. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how long that period of time might be. It might be 18 months, 24 months, 12 months. I I know that cycles come in and go out and, you know, things are great right now, but I am not expecting the drop to be what it was in 07, 08, 09. I worked for a company that survived that huge crash by being very conservative. Mm -hmm. And so our hope, you know, at Ashcroft is to expect some sort of downturn. Absolutely. So when we buy these properties, we're looking at sometimes a two or three year hold, but sometimes a five to seven or greater hold. And so, yeah, we we know at some point there's going to be a downward cycle and we need to do sensitivity analysis for that. So, you know, what What can we expect? I, I don't know. Maybe another two years until we right. kind of take another downward cycle, but hopefully we're buying properties that can make it through that as well. Right. And, and I guess this brings me to one of my next question is sort of what are you doing looking forward? What are you doing with your business to help, you know, grow as a real estate entrepreneur here in the U.S.? And that might be purchasing properties, as you're saying, that can withstand the next down cycle. But is there any other examples that you can give to the listeners out there about what you're doing with your business right now to future-proof it, so to speak? Yeah, you know, just like I said, buying conservative. Our, our business plan right now is to acquire properties for a long-term investment and establish our reputation with the 
other owners and other brokers in the market to, uh, you know, I've been working in this industry for seven years, so I know a lot of folks, but my group is not well known mm-hmm. right now. Um, the hope is that over the next year or two, I will be able to acquire a uh, you know, lot more property and have a certain reputation built up that is good enough so that even when things are tight and equity is not as much out there, those other investors will know that I'm making some safe plays and safe investments, and they'll be willing to invest with me through a down cycle, just like they are uh, right now when things are hot. Right. Great, mate. Love, love all that sort of stuff. This is really, really good, good takeaway information. So with all your experience in, you know, in the institutional multifamily scene within the US market, I know you're primed to give us your top five investing tips for the US. You ready to get into it? <laughs> okay, let's go. What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? It's really true that you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. And I think, you know, in certain ways, we've all had that thing that we've accomplished that if we look back, we, we never would have thought we could have done it. I kind of, not to pat myself on the back too much, feel like I'm a good example of that. I, I don't think I ever would have thought I could have you know, closed on a big commercial institutional deal on my own, but somehow uh, where there's a will, there's a way. So my best advice is just to keep working on your, your goals, your dreams, because you absolutely can accomplish them. Fantastic. What's the most influential tool you use in your real estate business and why? Influential tool is absolutely Excel. <laughs> I am an <laughs> expert at Excel. I love Excel on, on the computer, obviously. I'm the type of guy that really loves to get into the numbers. I, as a former electrical engineering student, I love trailing 12 profit and loss statement and a rent roll and find out exactly how much money this property is making, how much rent the, the residents are paying, what the bad debt might be. I love getting into the nitty gritty. And uh, Excel is very helpful. I don't know where I would be if I was investing in real estate 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, true. I, good point. I don't know where everyone would be with an abacus calculator or something like that. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? I, I would say I'm just really excited to get out there and do what I just did all over again. I'm excited mm-hmm. to go buy another uh, multifamily deal of right around two or 300 units. This last asset that you helped me purchase was some of the most exciting and uh, rewarding times of my career. And for the next five, 10 uh, more years, I hope to be doing nothing more but that all over again. Yeah, it was, it was very exciting. I keep telling everyone how incredible learning experience it was. It was, it was, it was great. Uh, mate, what's the, who's the most influential person in your career today? I think you sort of mentioned your lecturer before. Is it, was it him or was it anyone else? Yeah, I mean, he probably was. I, I wasn't thinking, you know, real estate. I kind of like finance. I like numbers. But I didn't really know where to apply that or what industry to, to head toward. And he was very charismatic, very exciting, very polite. And he made the act of investing in real estate, uh, both exciting, rewarding, and fun. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to be actually doing what he was teaching us in class. I'd say it was uh, 
Professor Eric Sussman, if he's listening to this, thank you very much. <laughs> Eric Sussman, all right. Mate, and lastly, what advice can you give to those listeners out there wanting to start buying multifamily uh, assets here in the US? Where's the starting point for the people wanting to break into the US market? I think a good starting point is multifamily, and it is going to be on the LP side of it. And I'll say that because you're a passive investor, but you're also learning a bunch while you're doing it. So you're asking the owners or the sponsors like myself, uh, you know, all the right questions, things like, well, what, what's the school district and what is your business plan and what are we going to do if rents go, go south in two years and how are you going to sell this asset? So you're asking all those questions and hopefully that sponsor is giving you correct and believable answers and, and you trust that person. But I think that's the fastest way to really get your hands dirty and also learn about investing is just by doing and possibly the first step for you might be on the LP side of it. Right. And an LP meaning limited partner or passive investor in one of your deals, correct? That's correct. Yep, cool. All right, well, finally, one last thing I want to get you to do. I ask all my non-Australian guests to give their best crack at an Australian accent. So can you give us your best crack at an Aussie accent saying, I don't know, investing in the U.S.? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'll be happy to <laughs> – God, I'm terrible at this – uh, Oi, mate, I'd be happy to have you be one of my partners on the next deal. <laughs> wow, that was really good. That was very good. I was, I'm actually surprised. <laughs> right. mate, that's fantastic. I did work in the entertainment industry. So. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of Aussies in there. Um, and where can people reach you to continue the conversation? My email address is frank at ashcroftcapital.com. I'd be happy uh, not only to show them our next opportunity that we have uh, coming online, as well as just to answer general questions about anything multifamily uh, related within the United States. Fantastic. Well, Frank, I'm glad I got you on the show. I love talking about all things related to multifamily investing as you know, that's what the focus of it is for our business. Uh, Frank, you gave the listeners some great pointers on getting started in multifamily investing and some great takeaway action steps to take the plunge. Thanks again for dropping by and chatting with us and we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Reid. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. A great summary of why we love investing in multifamily apartments. We examine the different ways commercial real estate provides a unique combination of high return, passive income and forced appreciation, making it the best opportunity to create long-term wealth. Now, make sure you check out the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Frank and any links we mentioned in today's show. To find out more about multifamily investing, check out my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge. I hope you got a lot out of today's show. To continue the conversation with us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching RSM Property Group. And remember to leave an iTunes review as we'd really appreciate it as it helps us grow our community of international investors eager to invest in the US. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.